0: Welcome to First Rung, a stuff-homed podcast brought to you with support from Razine. I'm reporter and would-be homeowner Kylie Klein-Nixon. By pushing play on this episode, you've agreed to join me on a wild ride through the heady, confusing, sometimes eye-wateringly expensive world of buying your first home. In the last episode, we got to grips with auctions and thought a little bit more about location. In this episode, we hear from two first-time buyers who really struggled to secure their
1: first homes. It seems like the system is set up to exclude first-home buyers.
0: And then we'll hear how each made it onto the property ladder in the end.
2: This one does come with a few extra bits and pieces that the other one didn't have, so it's all about perspective, I think. Stuff business editor Susan
0: Edmonds
3: gives us some tips on negotiating with the bank. You have a lot of power to negotiate things like interest rates and sometimes the cash back you can get from the bank. And the Real
0: Estate Authority's Acting Chief Executive, Piera Appleton, returns to explain how to choose the right lawyer to help you make sense of that most crucial document, the lim Report. So pop on a powdered wig and meet me in chambers. Let's make this thing legal. But first, how about a couple of tips from folks who've already made it on the first rung?
3: go see as many open homes as possible if you find the one you'll know it
1: stay within your price range think about what you can afford and make sure you don't fall in love with any properties that are outside of those limitations
3: buy what you need if you only need a two-bedroom house then buy that
1: make friends
2: with good real estate agents
3: buy for sun it's probably top of the list for resale value down the track Stalk the neighbourhood. Grab a cup of coffee on a Saturday morning and park up near the house that you're looking at buying and see who comes and goes, what your neighbours are like, what the neighbourhood is like because you're going to live there and it's really important that you're in a safe environment.
0: Over the last couple of episodes we've heard what a complex process buying a house can be. We've also explored how well regulated that process is. But what happens when some of the regulations and clauses put in place to protect home buyers backfire on them? Well, that's what happened to first-time buyer Bailey Ross, who bought off plans in 2019, only to find that sunset clauses can be anything but sunny. After saving up and getting her ducks in a row, Bailey found her dream townhouse.
2: I saw a listing come up for a property out in Tower really took my interest, went for a few viewings and decided to, to purchase. I probably did that in April. I signed all the contracts, at which time they told me it would be about three months um, until it's ready. It was existing and it was there. It just needed a few bells and whistles added to the, to the property. And it just got pushed out and pushed out. Not much information from the developer. And I think I'd heard in January this year, which was ages after the the go date that they were cancelling my contract just to, to re-list and try and sell it for more money, which was a bit of a shame.
0: At the time, one of the developers said he sympathised with Bailey, but they didn't have a choice as the development had been beset with problems. But Bailey, who's been saving a deposit for her first home since she was 16, wasn't going to give up the dream that easily.
2: I praise people for doing rentals, but for me, I'd always wanted my money to contribute to something bigger. There was really no thought about trying to find my own home, but they make it so difficult for, for everybody. <laughs> it's all yeah. so expensive and it's such yeah. a it's such a process, but I was really pleased to, to get there in the end. So
0: tell me about the first place, the place in Tawa. What, what did you think when you first saw it? Were you really thinking of it just as like an investment or did you fall in love with the place and you could really see yourself living there
2: for sure yeah the appeal at the beginning was for me to to have an immediate place to live in it was going to be like my first home and then maybe down the line, it would become an investment property. I think that's a really smart way for people to keep their first home as a bit of a back burner. But yeah, I, mm. I loved it immediately. Um, it was really perfect for me. It, it wasn't big and it wasn't small. It was a good size. It had a car park. It was new, um, which done, came with guarantees and all, everything you could have asked for. So it, it ticked a lot of boxes for sure. Yeah. Even now, like when I look around the market, you you do see properties out there, but none of them kind of hit that That threshold that I'd kind of created for myself, which made it really difficult trying to find another one. So can you tell me how much was
0: that place going for at the time and how much of a deposit did you have?
2: I bought it for five one five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a, a 10% deposit.
0: Right. And so this is on, towers on the city fringes, so it's a really good spot. Mm. It's quite well connected, isn't it? For sure. You felt confident that it was going to be finished. It wasn't like you were looking at a bare patch of land going, oh, <sighs> who knows what might happen? But um, yeah, it was quite well, well along the, the way to being completed, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, it was it was in a compound, so there were 22 of them, and they were being built in stages, and so the, the front section was obviously completed, and it was one of them was a show home. Um, and there was like the middle section and the back section and they were brought down and lifted at different stages. So there were pieces of it that weren't quite completed, but the, the bare bones were there. Yeah. Right.
0: So they, they contacted you in January and they said that your sale had been cancelled. How did you feel when you got that call?
2: Oh, it was horrible because <laughs> I felt like I was just patiently waiting and I was just rolling with all the waves and all the delays. I was like, oh, sit tight and silver lining it'll be soon or it'll be one day soon I've still got it and I've secured it I've just got to wait for it yeah it was really bad it was yeah it did, I didn't feel very good
0: <laughs> yeah it must have just felt like you know the rug pulled out from under you
2: yeah it it really did I mean it was I felt really accomplished that I'd achieved something so good um at 24 I was mm. like oh yeah I'm, I'm awesome hit the dream on the market what else can go wrong and then trying to find the motivation to start again if you will was just Mm, like it took mm. ages to kind of get that that back up and running
0: they paid you back your deposit and they paid you the interest which was minimal Mm. but did you end up losing money on things like did you get a building report had you paid for yeah the limb and all sorts of stuff so so how much did you lose actually out of
2: that oh as part of finance I had to do a property valuation so people go out a third party goes out and views it and makes sure that what you're buying is actually worth what you're paying mm. I think that one was oh, maybe about $900 and then there's like legal fees and all that too which probably totaled about three grand give or take so none of that came back but you know take it on the chin
0: What actually was it that allowed them to cancel that sale? what was called a sunset clause wasn't
2: it? Yeah I hate that word <laughs> <laughs> Um yeah, it's um, it's it's in there for the protection of both parties, so they outlined that if it's not completed by a set date, which in my contract was September, then either party could cancel, which at the time I thought was very fair and very valid, but I was under the illusion that it would be completed by August, so I didn't really think twice about the clause once it had passed, I it, yeah, totally just fell, fell under my feet. But it's effectively protection, um, so if I'm fed up with waiting for it or it's taking too long, I can pull out, and if the developer wants to, then he can as well
0: right, so so you can't really you can't really do without a sunset clause, but it's just something to be aware of for first time buyers if you're buying a new property, is that right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I didn't really think my story would get any traction at all, and it got quite a bit, um, and I think it really highlighted it with a few people just to watch out, check contracts and look out for things like that yeah but I think it is probably a necessity to have in there because it's not just not just for them, it's also for you.
0: So last thing, you, you did get back on the horse and you have mm. gone on to buy again. So where have you where have you ended up?
2: Um, I've bought out in Fairfield, which is in Lower Hutt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not far from me, through, Is it not? No. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, the woman that I've been dealing with at this new agency, she's, she's been fantastic. She saw my story break initially, and she's she stuck with me through the entire thing. So it's been really cool to have her as a support. And she she knows what I've gone through, so she's been really good to make sure that it doesn't happen again.
0: That's great. And do you mind me asking, had the market moved on a lot? Did you have to sort of pay a lot more than you'd initially wanted to by that stage? How much was your new place?
2: I did pay more. This one I've bought for five nine five. So a little bit extra, but I think I have to weigh up for, for what I'm getting the market going up. This one does come with a few extra bits and pieces that the other one didn't have. So it's all about perspective, I think. Mm. At my position, it's better for me to kind of invest in something that's, that's newer. Um, it's all under guarantee than to, to do something older. Right. Um, which may need a new roof or insulation. Right, or, yeah, know, of course. carpet, which will cost more in the long run.
0: You you bought new, was it a um a, a townhouse again out, out that way? It or? was, yeah. yeah I yeah. haven't learnt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, no, it's good to hear that you're in the place, though, that you've got somewhere. Yeah. What would you say to somebody who's looking at, at a new build that's still just on paper? What would your advice be to them now?
2: I just think it's all about communication. If you have a really strong, or trust as well, trust and communication with whoever you're dealing with. and um, They keep you in the loop with any, any hiccups or even if there's no hiccups, they're just in touch with you. Um, I think that's probably a big factor in building rapport and keeping that relationship alive. For me, I think not so much it was lacking in the first time, but there were definitely months where I didn't hear anything and I just didn't think twice. But yeah, build a good relationship and trust whoever you're working with and mm. have a really strong legal team. If you've got a broker, get them to look at it too. Just have a a good network of people that can support you through it, I'd say.
0: When it comes time to put your mark on your first home, check out Razine for the professional advice you need for your decorating projects. According to Bailey, it just goes to show that you can't ask your lawyer too many questions before signing on the dotted line. And even when you have picked their brains and done your due diligence with diligence, it pays to be prepared for the worst. When it comes to buying a home, the first person you negotiate with is yourself. What can you live without? What's a deal breaker? Learning to compromise is good practice for your next big haggling partner, the bank. There's a certain amount of skill involved in negotiating with seasoned professionals, but there will be wiggle room in the conditions and clauses on your mortgage, even for first-time buyers. To find out where that wiggle room lurks, I sat down with Stuff Business Editor Susan Edmonds. Hey Susan, thanks for coming back on the show again. No worries. You have to come to your lawyer with an idea of what your top offer is. So How do you decide that? Because just because a bank will lend you a certain amount of money doesn't mean you need to spend that.
3: Well, usually you would decide on your top offer as part of the process of negotiating with a real estate agent. Because my experience is you go in, you say, oh yeah, I'm prepared to offer this amount, and they say... Or would you be willing to miss out on it for the sake of $10,000 or something like that? So they end up pushing you up like in little increments. Mm. And sometimes you'll be in a situation where you're in a multi-offer scenario and so you have to put in your best offer right from the start. Sometimes you're in an auction and you know what you can afford to bid up to. But I guess the only way to decide what you're willing to spend on a property is to work out for yourself what you think it's worth. And you can do that by, I suppose, looking around at what else is selling and what kind of prices similar properties are going for. If you really want to be certain, you could pay for a valuation. People say things like, you know, a property's worth what a willing buyer is willing to pay and a willing seller is willing to accept. So it changes all the time. But there are lots Mm. of, I suppose, metrics you can use. Sometimes people will say properties in this area are selling for X percent above CV at the moment. But it really, in every situation, you just have to work out what you think it's worth whether the, that is an amount the bank will lend you or not. Sometimes for me, it's not. <laughs> but, no. you know, And then you just kind of say, this is my top offer. And the real estate agents, it's their job to try to get a bit more out of you. But as long as you, you know, stick to your guns and know what you can afford, then you'll either be successful or you won't, I suppose.
0: So When you're talking with your banks, talking about kind of getting the most that you can afford out of your bank, as a first-timer, what sort of power do you have to negotiate really?
3: I think you have a lot of power to negotiate things like interest rates and sometimes the cash back you can get from the bank. Although if you have a small deposit, you have less negotiating power. But usually you can get them to move a bit on those sorts of things. My experience is that it's it's pretty hard to get them to negotiate on the maximum amount that they will lend. Right now I'm looking at, at moving house and the bank has got down to what they will lend us to like – the last three thousand dollars, and that's the limit that they will lend to us. So mm. I think, yeah, you can negotiate the terms of your loan, the amount you pay for it to some extent, but the amount that they will lend and the deposit they want you to have is much more set. Yeah, there are a lot of
0: hidden costs in house buying, and they're sometimes hidden because people are new at this and they haven't thought about things. Every time I've talked to people, there have been new costs, they've brought up new things that you have to do, especially around due diligence. So we talked about builder's report and valuations. What are other hidden costs that people should keep in mind?
3: I think that a building report and a valuation are the most, probably the most expensive hidden costs that you might not have thought about when you go into the process because... Sometimes the bank will say you have to have a valuation if we're going to lend you the money on this property, and a building report is generally a good idea, especially if it's a property that might have you know leaky issues or it's an older place, and you want to make sure that you know what you're in for before you sign up. Mm. Other than that, you might you can do things like a meth test, although that's a lot less. Um, popular these days since you know the Mm. government report and other than that I think those are the main things you can pay you can get a limb sometimes you can go to the council and get I think it's called a property pack and that's like all the information that the council has on a property and sometimes that can be like a limb light but I I think it's recommended that you get the limb.
0: I know that some property lawyers have conveyancing packages where pretty much you know you, you pay that price you get the whole thing unless something happens so should you be budgeting a little bit on top just in case something goes awry?
3: Generally, they know what they're doing and they do it so often that it's so straightforward. It just, that's the price and it's fine. It's just, if, I suppose, if there's anything tricky about your particular deal that might blow out the legal costs, then that's something to keep in mind, yeah.
0: Also, you mentioned the builder's report and the valuation. What price range are you looking at for those sorts of things?
3: Uh, I th- do think it varies, but I recently... I had both done on a house and it was eight hundred dollars for the valuation and I think about six hundred for the building report. So it was not a small amount of money. You wouldn't want to be doing it over and over again. But if you were to be having to bid at auction say, you do have to do that before you turn up on the day. So it can be something that adds up, particularly if you're unsuccessful on a number of properties.
0: Um, brilliant information. Thanks, thanks a lot, Susan. Cheers. Bye.
1: I'm real estate agent Ben Atwill and this is your Insider's Guide to House Listings.
0: Not for the faint-hearted.
1: Let's just say they're looking for someone experienced or a very naive buyer who thinks they're experienced to tip in their money on this one. Really should not be a first, second or in some instances even a third-time buyer unless you're either in the industry or have a significant trade discount at a hardware store.
0: Even with top-notch negotiating skills, the hunt doesn't always go great. The key is to keep trying and adjusting your wants list to suit the market. That's the lesson stuff visual journalist Jack Price learned on the path to buying his first home. He and his partner started looking in the capital's inner suburbs, before quickly realising, even with their modest first home dreams, they were going to have to be pretty flexible. So Jack... You and your partner, when you were first looking for your first home, you you sort of looked out in the suburbs to start with. Yeah. So what were you looking for?
1: So I think our kind of wish list was... Two bedrooms, a small garden, if possible, like well insulated, like a healthy home, I guess you'd mm. call it, and close links to a train line, basically, whether it was in the hut or in Portadown.
0: So you weren't looking for anything sort of flash. It wasn't like I no, need a we pool were, and a separate garage and a. No,
1: we were looking for a first home. Yeah, basically, yeah, anything, anything would do really.
0: Did you have a price range? What was your price range like?
1: So when we were kind of basing it on a 20% deposit, I think we were trying to get together like a $75,000 deposit, which I think would translate to like about $375,000 home, something like that. Right.
0: So sort of, yeah, I mean, you were being quite reasonable and by all the meters of people looking for the first time, right? Yeah. But you really struggled to find because there just weren't any, or was that the case? That yeah, any... it
1: felt like when we started looking there wasn't much that met those requirements. There were mostly everything. There's not many two bedroom homes mm. because it is mostly families living out in the suburbs.
0: But but looking in town you didn't have anything there was you couldn't find anything in town either.
1: We did try to look at suburbs around around Wellington, like Newtown and Kilburnie and those kind of places, but we found them too expensive basically. Mm. Mm. Um, We kind of, to get into our price range, we had to leave the city.
0: So what was it? When did you start looking at apartments?
1: I guess kind of getting frustrated initially with looking in the suburbs and not finding much of what we wanted. Apartments did kind of fit into what we wanted. We were already living in the city, so it wouldn't have been much of a lifestyle change. if We'd managed to find a one bedroom apartment or even a two bedroom apartment. There did seem to be more around. But then as we kind of started looking, we found that they were a lot more Difficult to buy, even if the price seemed initially to be a bit more favorable.
0: Right. So, you're talking about that the LVR was what was sort of getting in the way there? Yeah.
1: So, there are how much
0: you could borrow from the
1: bank. Yes. So, the banks take a lot more things into consideration when you ask them, Can I please buy an apartment? So, first off, there are square meterage issues, which I think apply to all homes, but obviously, apartments are more likely to be under the threshold, which I it differs between banks, I not quote me exactly, but I think it was 50 or 60 square meters, depending on the bank. Yeah. A house had to be at least that much for them to allow a 20% deposit. If it was under that, you'd need a 30% deposit, which for us was possible in some circumstances with um, in you terms have to of get getting help. the finances together. It was, right. it was possible for us. I'm sure it wouldn't be for a lot of people to get mm. to that 30%. But then there are still other problems that you run into.
0: What sort of things are you talking about? Like what other issues were involved in looking for a, an apartment?
1: So in um, Wellington, where we're looking, a big thing is earthquake strengthening and building code standards. Right,
0: of course. Was... There would also be a problem down south as well. And
1: Yeah, I mean, I imagine it's a problem all over the country. Um, but obviously Wellington does seem to have a lot of stock of high rise buildings that are in need of um, strengthening.
0: Jack says that even when his bank was happy with the size of the property, they were unhappy with the percentage of the earthquake code it came up to. It was a frustrating and disheartening experience.
1: It seems like the system is set up to exclude first-home buyers from purchasing. They seem to let you get your foot in the door with all the, the advertising and the marketing and everything and all that, but when it actually comes down to it, you've got to commit to that decision as well. And you've got to be very financially solvent yeah. um, and you've got to be prepared or to kind of compromise a lot of things because there are other issues as well in terms of some properties have a thing called a company share. There
0: are several ways to own an apartment, freehold, leasehold and company share. Company share means you'll be a shareholder in the company that owns the whole building. Ten flats in your building means you own 10% of the company. The effect is the same as owning your own unit outright, but it usually comes with some restrictions on things like renting it out or even selling it on. Because of that, most banks want a bigger stake from the buyer, sometimes even up to 40 or 45% deposit.
1: So despite all of the um, complaints that I've just outlined about apartment building, we did end up finding a building that managed to squeeze in all of those requirements. It was up to code. The square meterage was big enough. It was... Well, we thought it was going to be affordable. So we did end up making an offer on two different apartments in the same building. But both times, we were still outbid. I think we had a 30% deposit in the end as well. And we were still... Yeah, we were still outbid by, I presume, investors. But I don't know. Right. And once that happened, it kind of hit the nail on the head a little bit with looking at apartments. We're like, right, we're done. This isn't going to work for us. So we... Took our search back out into Wellington's outer suburbs and ended up finding a property in Lower Hut. It's a very modest property that we now live in. Um, it's a two-bedroom, very small garden. It's, I guess you could describe it as a granny flat. Right. Um, there's even still bars on the shower.
0: <laughs> it's future-proofed if you say Fu- it is. It is already future-proofed.
1: Lives. So, and it was, you know, there was work that we have now begun to do to it that right. we could see it needed doing to a make it more livable and increase the value of it as well.
0: So so how much did you end up paying for that?
1: We ended up paying I believe 374,000.
0: Right. And what percentage was the deposit that you So ended- I
1: believe we only we put in the 20% deposit 20%, for but that.
0: You you needed to get help as well from family or family helped you out? Yes, you so we split out, it. Yeah. So
1: we split it down the middle between the two families right. and we both contributed from our own savings that we had. Um, and then both both parents were luckily Able, able know, to help. You're yeah. fortunate enough to be yeah. to be in
0: that position. Well, that's great. Well, thanks so much for your time today. No, today. That's, that's okay. It's a bit like earning Girl Scout badges. I've got my negotiates like a professional and my compromises well with others badges. All I need now is my successfully engaged a lawyer badge, and I'll have the set. My Nana always said, "Forewarned is forearmed." And who better to forearm you in the arcane world of property contracts than a lawyer? But not all lawyers are created equal, and there's no point asking for advice from the family lawyer if the closest they ever get to property law is witnessing a will or two. You need a property top gun. And to help me figure out how to choose one, I caught up with the REA's Pera Appleton, who settled an argument I've been having with myself about the difference between a property conveyancer and a property lawyer.
4: The key difference between the lawyer and the conveyancer is that a conveyancer is a specialist in the property transaction only, whereas if you go see a lawyer, they'll be able to provide you with more extensive advice. For instance, if there's a relationship breakdown and that the property is needing to be sold as a result of that, or there's review of other material that are related to the um, sale and purchase agreement, then they can provide additional advice, whereas the conveyancer is really specialised and focused on the property transaction.
0: They're they're more kind of dealing with the contracts and things like that, and specifically about purchase rather than any other kind of sort of extra issues.
4: That's right, more specifically about that property transaction and the sale and purchase agreement for the, both the seller and the purchaser.
0: So at, w- at what stage in the in the process should you be looking at getting a lawyer involved? We would encourage purchasers to go to a lawyer
4: really early on in the process because the lawyer can help you identify any aspects of the contract you're uncomfortable with. They can provide you with additional advice on how to approach the transaction process. So really going in early to meet with the lawyer that you're comfortable with is really important.
0: So um, a lot of first-time buyers won't have engaged a lawyer before. What are the questions you should be asking to make sure you're choosing the right person for the job? We um, would
4: encourage you to not look at the lawyer as just someone to do a quick review over the contract, they're there to provide you with a really specialist source of knowledge and advice. So what we would get the purchaser to do is to ask really good questions about what to expect from the particular sale process that they're undertaking, what they could look for when um, thinking about conditions on the contract, what they should be looking for when they're reviewing any relevant information that the process brings to them. And those types of questions are really important really early on in that process because Mm. it prepares you for the transaction
0: itself. Do they need to be a particular kind of lawyer? Like I've got a family lawyer but is that necessarily going to be the right person for the job?
4: They really should be a property lawyer and and specialising in that area. You may get along well with a number of lawyers and have a really good strong relationship with a family lawyer but it's really best to um, work with a property lawyer.
0: Is it that's because the contracts are quite complex and and specialised?
4: Yes, it is um, because they are specialist areas, but it's also because they can provide advice on the whole process and not just about that one document. So really walking you through, for instance, the property inspection report or the LIM and other material that you might get from a property transaction.
0: So, so what's the etiquette around asking how much they charge? Is it something you should be quizzing them about out of the gate? Um, you can ask the
4: questions right up front when you meet with the lawyer. The lawyers are bound by a professional uh, code of conduct and professional rules, and they do need to tell you what they intend to charge you and give you an estimate of costs as well. So it's, people should feel comfortable about asking that question so that that's all part of the planning process, knowing how much uh, that lawyer will cost you as well. That's important to understand.
0: I guess that really depends on the individual lawyers as well, the price.
4: Yes, that's right. And also the region, there can be variation between different lawyers and regions. Also, different levels of experience will also dictate how much they charge.
0: So what can and can't they do? Like, What what advice should they be giving you and what advice are they they're not able to give you?
4: They can give you advice around all the different clauses in the contract, really ensuring that you understand what you're signing up to, because it is a binding legal document. really important that the lawyer walks you through that. If you have any Uh, questions about any particular clauses, then they should be able to provide you with advice and an explanation as to what those clauses mean. Though I should be able to walk you through the certificate of title. So, looking at uh, the title that's provided as part of that property, if there are any interests on that title, which means if there's anything on that title that is a red flag for the purchaser or that they don't understand, a lawyer, a property lawyer, should be able to explain that to the purchaser so they know what they're going into, eyes wide open as much as possible. The lawyer can also help with the council documents and council files, as well as um, providing advice on what types of conditions might be placed on that sale and purchase agreement.
0: So you mentioned red flags there. What what would you consider a red flag?
4: So I would consider the interest in land that might give other property owners a right of access right. to the property, any aspects of the title that are questionable, any other rights that other people have over your property will be
0: red flags um, to ask questions about. Let's talk about the LIM report. Well, what is it exactly and why is it so important and so how does it differ from a building report?
4: Sure, so the LIM report is A land information memorandum and that's a council file. It's a pretty significant council file for a lot of properties. It has all the details about that property file that the council holds so it will include all of the consents that have been provided in relation to that property. It has um, all of the zoning information. It shows, as you mentioned before, around flooding, if there are any uh, geographical features of the property that you need to be aware of. It's a really comprehensive file um, and it can be quite an overwhelming file to review on your own without support and advice from a Mm -hmm. source of knowledge like a lawyer. In terms of the difference between a LIM and a property report, the property report is about the structure of the house that you're looking at. A property
0: report and a building report, they're the same thing,
4: aren't they? Yes, we use those terms interchangeably, that's right.
0: You were saying a building report is more about the, the state of the building? That's right.
4: So it's really about the house itself rather than all of the other features about the property that you're buying into. So it might identify if there are any leaks or weather tightness issues it might identify the era in which the house is bought and what might be um, things to consider as a purchaser so the type of cladding for instance it should include also if there are any issues around asbestos right, or right. I guess the best way to describe it it's what you can touch on the house.
0: Right so and it's in all the sorts of things that might end up costing you a lot of money if you discover them after you've made the purchase. That's right. You're lined up made an offer and it's been accepted all you need to do is pick up the keys and move in right well join me in the next episode when we get quotes from movers and find out exactly what to expect on settlement day I'm Kylie Klein-Nixon and this is First Rung huge thanks to our guests Jack Price Bailey Ross Piera Appleton Susan Edmonds and Ray White real estate agent Ben Atwell shout out to producer Joe Haywood and Stuff Podcast editor Adam Dudding Thanks also to our sponsors, Resene, New Zealand-made paints for New Zealand-made homes. You can find First Rung on all the podcast platforms. and We really want to hear how your house hunt is going, so drop me a line on homed@stuff.co.nz. Happy house hunting!